So I, I, um, I'm doing a little sermon on this book called Goliath Must Fall, and people have asked me, where do I get my ideas from? And I get my ideas from all over the place, but this was actually from the Bible app that's on our phone, you know, the um, U version, yeah. And so they, what authors do is they do little teasers and they do devotionals, and then I'm like, ooh, I want to buy that book. So I did the devotional. I liked it so much, I thought I'm going to do, do a sermon on the book, and it's called Goliath Must Fall. And, you know, true to my form, I was, as I was reading going, oh, these people have heard this all before. But I'm like, this is what my gig is. This is what my sweet spot is, is helping us to live free, live in our destiny, live in our identity. That's what I love doing. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep preaching that because that's what I like, you know. And I'll, we'll have other speakers preach other things, but this is what I'm going to keep preaching because <laughs> I really, really like it. Um, I like the idea because it's based on the story of David and Goliath. Um, and, you know, you know the story David faced this huge Goliath. But I think the reason I like it is because we all, even when we're Christians, have Goliaths or giants in our lives, right? And we think that since, or there's a myth out there that if you are a Christian, you shouldn't have any giants. Or if you do have giants, there's something wrong with you. Or you might not really be a Christian, right? There's kind of that myth out there that, that we need to put on our happy face and put on our perfect face and not show anybody what we struggle with. And so I like this this book because it's the idea that we do have giants, we do have Goliaths, but they've already been conquered. How do we partner with God to do the conquering, so to speak? It's, it's him and us together. And so I just love this book. Um, and it's, it's the idea that even though um, we are Christians, sometimes we don't live God's best for us. Um, in John 10, 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so it's God's intention that we do conquer our Goliath, that Goliath does fall, Goliath must fall, but we have to partner with him in that. And I'm just going to kind of go through the story of David and Goliath. I know we've all heard it, but let's just do it together and kind of refresh ourselves, okay? If you remember, um, David was the youngest son of Jesse in the land of Israel, and he was actually anointed to be king before he ever became king. Saul was the king of the land. Um, God had anointed Saul, but then Saul displeased God, and he took away the kingship from his line and said, I'm going to give it to somebody else. And he sent Samuel out to Jesse's house and said, I want you to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king. And so Jesse, being you know the dad that he is, he pulls in his firstborn son and says, look at this son. And Samuel's like, no, that's not the one. And on and on and on it goes until there's nobody left. And Samuel says, is this all the sons you have? Do you not have any more sons? And Jesse's like, well, I've got the young one. I mean, I've got the baby. He's out watching the sheep. I mean, pot, you don't really want him. And Samuel's like, bring him on in. So they brought, Sam, or brought David in, and sure enough, Samuel's like, this is the one that God wants to anoint to be king. And so Samuel anoints David to be king, which, you know, I'm sure astounded everybody because they're like, what? I mean, why would, you, why would you anoint this young person? He's not the smartest. He's not the most handsome. He's not the oldest. What's going on here? But, you know, he's a man of God. They let him do it. So, you know, fast forward a little bit, and we've got the Philistines coming against the Israelites in the land of Israel. And just picture it, if you will, there's two hills and a valley that runs between the hills. And on one side of the hill is the Israelites, on the other side of the hill is the Philistines. And so David's older brothers went to work or went to be soldiers in, um, 
for Saul, in the, for the army of Israel, to defeat the Philistines. And his dad, Jesse, said to David, listen, go take some food to your brothers. They, they need some food and report back to me what's going on. I want to know what's going on in the, on the battlefront. Tell me what's going on. So David goes to the battlefront. And while he's there, he happens to see this, this situation. What happens is every single day for 40 days, this giant of a man named Goliath comes out and stands in front of the Israelite army and says, listen, I know how we're going to solve our problem. We're going to do a one-on-one, man-on-man, winner-take-all combat. I'll be the champion for the Philistines. You send me a champion. We'll fight hand-to-hand. Whoever wins takes the whole, whole thing. We don't have to put our armies, you know, we don't fight our armies. We just fight man-to-man. Do you think one person took his offer? One person rose up? Not one person, not Saul, not anybody. In fact, it says that they were so scared, they trembled and not one person went out. And these are grown men. Not one person would face Goliath because he was so intimidating and so scary. Except for David. David comes into the scene, a young, untried whippersnapper that doesn't know anything, anointed king, and he comes in, and he hears this, and he says, what in the world is going on? Why has no one stood up to this man? And, you know, people are like, well, you know, we, we don't want to stand up to him. And he, they said, but Saul has said the man that does stand up to him will have no taxes. Wouldn't you love that for the rest of your life? Treasure and the daughter of the king in hands in, in marriage. And David was just flabbergasted. He's like, why will no one stand up against this Philistine dog? This Philistine dog uncircumcised dog, right? That's even worse, I suppose. And word got around. He finally went to Saul, and Saul called him in and said, listen, I heard that you're willing to go up against this guy. And, you know, it would actually be good because they didn't want to, the men didn't want to die between the two armies. And if we can get one person to settle this, that'd be fantastic. And David says, I'll do it. I killed a bear. I killed a lion. I can certainly kill this uncircumcised dog, Right? Saul tries to put his armor on him, but it's too big. It doesn't fit him correctly. He says, forget that. I'm not going to take your armor. So he goes down. He does what's familiar with him, what he's been trained to do, what he's done ever since he's been a shepherd for his dad. As he goes to the brook, and he gets five stones, and he puts them in a slingshot, and he goes out to meet Goliath. And, you know, Goliath, it says in the Bible that um, his armor was so heavy, it was 125 pounds. That's a big man carry 125 pounds just of armor on your body. And he came out with a shield bearer, and um, David meets him with a sling, hits him with the first stone, and he falls dead to the ground. Now, here's my favorite part. A lot of people don't talk about this. But I guess since I like this kind of gore, this is, would be my favorite part. <laughs> he falls to the ground dead. David runs up, pulls the sword, because David doesn't have a sword pulls a sword with the Philistine's very own sword, cuts his head off, and then carries it around and shows it to people. (laughs) Carries it around and shows it to people to show I have defeated this Philistine and to give them courage and to show this man has been defeated. Let that sink in for a second, (laughs) right? So I know you've heard that, but maybe not so graphic at the end, right? So the question is, the Israelites faced a giant. What kind of giants do we face? W- and what are giants <coughs> in our lives? What, 
What do giants look like in our lives? For me, a giant is any kind of (coughs) paralyzing or insurmountable challenge or problem that prevents us from living the abundant life that God has for us. And remember, we're called to abundant life. And abundant life to me looks like this. We're free from any bondage that hinders or harasses us. We're free to display the glory of God in our life. And we're free to live out our God-given destiny. Unfortunately, sometimes we partner with giants in our lives and we allow giants to take hold and to live in our neighborhood until they get out of hand and then we're overwhelmed and they intimidate and they harass us. Do you remember that? You have to help me with the name. Do you remember that famous duo in Las Vegas, Siegfried and Roy? And remember they had a, um, a tiger act. Do you remember that? white tigers and they did this big like I don't know circus kind of thing with them and in 2003 Roy was mauled almost to death by his seven-year-old white tiger in fact there are think about 256 people that lost their jobs because that's how many people that that show um, employed and because of that 256 people job they were laid off because of that And I got a question for you. What crazy person thinks that working with a a tiger would be safe? I mean, does that make sense to you guys? Does it make sense to you? Okay. (laughs) Because here's what I think. I think that's an unrealistic expectation, at least for me. I would think that this is a wild animal, and no matter what you do, a wild animal is a wild animal. And you provoke it enough, and it's going to retaliate. And it almost killed this man. And several years later, they shut down the act, and they had to retire permanently and all that kind of thing because, because of this situation. And I think, you guys, we do the same thing. Hopefully not as bad as that. But we entertain things in our lives that maybe look really small. And maybe when this couple got um, these tigers, they were cute, and they were cuddly, and they were loving, and they purred and whatever. And at that moment, they didn't seem like they'd ever rise up to maul you right? But they grew up to be what they really were, which is wild animals. And I think what we do with our own giants, you guys, is we entertain these small little seemingly harmless things that maybe bring us a measure of comfort or help us what we think is like to manage our world or, or maybe it's what we're familiar with. So we allow it to what we think be small in our lives. But what happens is it grows up to be a giant in our life and to take us down and to show its true colors, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we sometimes partner with it. We sometimes don't put it aside the way we should, or maybe we can't. But that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the giants that maybe are in the way, that are trying to prevent us from living out our destiny and living out the very best life that God has for us. Good. Um, here's the thing about the, um, about the story of David and Goliath, though. When we think about David and Goliath, we always draw the parallel that David was this tiny little boy who fought this huge giant with the help of God, and Goliath fell, and it was a miracle. And we sometimes think, when we talk about David and Goliath, that we're the David and we're fighting the Goliath. We're fighting our giant. But what I want to tell you is we're not David. 
Jesus is David. Because see, and this is huge, think about this for a minute. This battle is a champion versus champion, winner take all kind of battle. If Goliath wins, the Philistine army would win. If David wins, the Israelite army would win. We're not David. David represents Jesus in this story. Right? <laughs> We're not David. Jesus is David. Our job is to keep our eyes on Jesus, partner with Jesus. Jesus slays the giants in our lives. We don't slay the giants in our lives. It's not our job because you know what? We can't do it. It's Jesus who's our champion. And it's winner take all. It's winner take all. It's, it's one and done. We don't have to keep doing it. The giant is dead, right? Isn't that so good? All right. <laughs> but why do you think, when we look back to the picture of David and Goliath, why do you think that God picked David? Because there's a couple things that we know. We know that David was a murderer. We know he was an adulterer. We know he was a man of violence. He could not um, complete the temple because he had so much violence. Yet God chose him to be a king over Israel and, in fact, to be the forefather of Jesus. And in this picture, he is a picture of Jesus in our lives. So why did God pick David? Does anybody know? Because he has a heart. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. But even more than that, he was a worshiper. And this makes me think of you, Tim. When I was, when I was doing this, I thought of Tim Foster. Louis Giglio says it like this. In the story of David and Goliath, God did not want victory to come about because David was fitted out with all the best armor and held a sword in his hands and was really brave and defied the odds and had a whole army at his back. God wanted victory to come simply because one young man trusted him. So what does it mean to be a worshiper? Like when I say, let's be worshipers, what does it mean to be a worshiper? What do you think of? Because I'll tell you what I think of. Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? You have the answers? Oh, yeah, don't look at your, don't look at your notes. <laughs> right. That's right. Right. When I think of worship, I immediately think of singing songs or writing songs or meditating in the morning or reading my Bible or this particular type of method of worship. And we kind of get trapped in the idea that worship only looks one way. Right. But that's just not true. Worship is simply a shift of attention that allows us to see God better, which is what worship does. When we start with worship here, what are we doing? We're shifting our attention. We're saying now we purpose together that we're going to pause in our time and together we're going to shift and we're going to put our eyes on God. Right? And that's what Tim does. Right? He leads us in shifting and putting, putting our eyes on the Lord. Even if it's for a small time, we decide we're going to do that together. And that Tim does that fantastic. Give him a hand clap. He does that fantastic. <laughs> Worship is like corrective lenses for our souls, bringing God into clearer view. You know how I've talked about we all have filters that we kind of walk around with? When we choose to worship, just like Gordon said, we put the filter of God on, and we say we're going to see life 
through the corrective lens of God and what he's doing in our lives and doing amongst us. That's the definition of worship. However that might happen for you. I was reading in that same little um, Bible app about um, a famous marriage couple. And one of, the wife is really contemplative. She'll get up in the morning and she'll read her devotions and journal and do all that stuff. But the husband doesn't, that's not how he worships God. That's not how he c connects with the Lord. He connects, and, and it really spoke to me because it's the way I connect. He connects by studying the word, by doing Bible study or doing, you know, reading a book or reading a devotional or something. Almost more of a left-brained, like she's more right-brained, he's more left-brained. But you know what? That's the way I connect with the Lord. That's why I like reading these kind of books because I'm like, oh, it's something interesting. It's something new. It connects me. It refocuses me to see the Lord. And I think it's important that we do not pigeonhole what worship looks like, right? I mean, I love this kind of worship, and it's fantastic. I love good music. I don't play an instrument. I sing, but I don't play an instrument. That's not my, that's a way that I worship, but I love worshiping by learning about God, right? Other people worship God in completely different ways, and we need to honor that. We need to, we need to respect the way that people worship as that's their unique connection with the Lord. Well, like I said, we don't have to do our own fighting. Jesus has already accomplished this on the cross. It's a finished act. I mean, he, what he did, he did once and for all, and, and it doesn't have to be redone over and over and over. But then again, the question still is, why do we still struggle with giants? If it's a completed act, why are we still struggling? Like, what's going on? And... Um, Louis had a really good picture. I'm just going to share a story with you. When he was young, he used to go snake hunting. He was his, one of his friends was Andy Stanley. Did you know that? I did not know that. Andy Stanley? Louis Giglio, the author of that book. Louis Giglio, the author of this book, used to go snake hunting with Andy Stanley when they were children. Um, poisonous snakes. And they would go out at night. They were cops. Cotton mouths? Copperheads. Copperheads, maybe? And they would go out and they'd find the, <laughs> it was very sophisticated the way they killed the, um, the snakes. They would take a baseball bat and just bash it in the head until it was dead. <laughs> so they would bash the snake in the head till it's dead, but then they would, and sorry, this is real graphic and gross, they would pop that head off. Mm. Nice. And what would they take with that head? Then they would take the head and they would bury it deep in the ground. And they would, right? Chris is saying right? And and you carry, and then they would carry the body around with them. And what they found out was even when the head is buried, the body still wriggles, wriggles around your arm. And here's the other thing. Isn't that gross? It's like carrying a dead a, a head around and showing it to people, right? And the other thing about snakes, I know, is that you would, um, if you don't bury the head of a poisonous snake, it still has venom in its in its veins, and if you step on it, you can still be poisoned. That's why they bury the head so deep, because it's still poisonous. Now, you see where I'm going with this? Right. So, so here's the thing. Jesus defeated the, our enemy, the snake, but he's still deadly to us. He still has poison in his veins if we step on that head. He's dead. He's been defeated, but there's, he's still deadly to us. And we need, we need to be aware of that. It's a finished act, and yet we have to participate with God so we don't step on the head 
we're not tangled up by the, the body wriggling around. Does that make sense? That's kind of a graphic picture, but does that make sense to you guys? Even though it's a finished work, it's a done but not yet. Done and we're not quite there. We have to participate in what's going on, what Jesus has done on the cross. So this week and next week, I'm going to talk about five um, giants that we kind of all struggle with. Fear, rejection, this is a weird one, comfort, complacency, that's actually a giant. Anger and addiction, those are the five things we're going to talk about. The f- I'm going to talk about two tonight, fear and rejection. These are been very dear giants to my heart. These I know very, very personally, so I have a lot to talk about. Like I said, in my own life, my number one giant is fear. Fear of failure, fear of the future, fear of loss, fear of security. You name it, I've probably felt it. Actually, I would say there's been a time in my life where fear and anxiety has been debilitating, crippling, to where I couldn't, I could probably not function on a maybe a day-to-day basis. And I can't say that was a long time. That's, that severity wasn't long in my life, but I've experienced it before. I've experienced the low-grade kind of anxiety, the kind which makes you want to crawl into bed and just pull the covers over your head and just sleep for three or four hours. Anybody felt that before? Yeah. The kind where you're like, you know, I just don't want to, I don't, I can't really talk to anybody today. I just, maybe I'll eat a gallon of ice cream or maybe I'll eat nothing. It doesn't really matter. That's, that's the kind of fear that, that does not allow us to live in the very best of what God's called us. That does not allow us to display his glory, to walk on our destiny. That giant's got to go. Do you agree? Cut his head off, bury it in the ground. (laughs) What is the antidote to fear? Well, first of all, let's look at the root cause of fear. Um, There's three root causes. Fear comes from our conditioning. Number one, fear comes from our conditioning. Conditioning, that means we can be raised in a fearful environment, right? That's kind of something that I think is true in my life. Um, I believe that fear is a generational thread in my family's life because I can see it all around the place. And it's something that I have to spiritually stand up against and say I'm not partnering with generational fear and I'm not allowing it to live in our, right? I'm not allowing it to live in our in our line anymore. I have to actually take a stand against that kind of thing. The other kind of conditional fear is an atmosphere of fear. Sometimes we work with people. or It may not be a family or generational thing. It might be an atmosphere like um, at work. Or have you ever worked in an environment which was full of fear? I have. I actually worked in a um, police department for a short time, and it was full of fear. It was horrible. It's oppressive. It's like you can almost see it in the air. It's terrible. That can be a giant. That's where fear can come from, is from your atmosphere. A second place is from concealing. You wouldn't all kind of think about this, but sometimes when we have been sinned against, when bad things have happened to us that we're ashamed of, or we participate in things that we're ashamed of, that can bring a great deal of fear on us, fear of being exposed, fear of not being good enough, right? And that concealing um, can cause us to have a big giant of fear in our life. The third thing is fear comes from our controlling. Anybody here a controller? Anybody? 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 Yeah. A lot of fear comes from the inability to control events or people around us. Does that resonate with you, Janet? 
<laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but, and this is where Celebrate Recovery has been fantastic. There have been times in my life where I would ruminate and obsess and ruminate and obsess and ruminate obsess about what might happen or what could happen or if this happens, then this, or if then this, or then this, and on and on and on to where it's an obsessive thought pattern in my life. Has anyone ever had that before? That is a person who wants to control, not realizing they really don't have control, right? You don't really have control. But if you think you do or think you should, you're going to be ruled by that kind of fear. That's going to be a giant in your life. So the antidote to fear is faith, and the soundtrack to faith is worship. Right? Look, at it's in bold. Bold on your notes. That will be page two. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. All right, so I am going to give you four ways that we practice faith. Because, because, like I said, this is a finished work of Christ, but we must partner in it, right? So we're going to practice to have faith. We're going to practice our faith so that we can conquer the giants in our life. The first thing we're going to do is remind ourselves that God is able. He's able to do more than we could ever hope, dream, or imagine. Is that right? He can do it instantaneously, and he can do it in the process, sometimes both. The example I want to use here is Lazarus. You know, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the, out of the tomb, and do you know, some people think that if he didn't use the name Lazarus, they would have all come out. Isn't that funny? So he had to say, Lazarus, you come out, or all the rest of them would have come out too. Isn't that awesome? But when he said, Lazarus, come forth, well, what did Lazarus have to do? He had to stand up and come forth. Right? So there was an instantaneous he's brought back to life. But as he stood up and came forth, his family had to go and unwrap the grave clothes, take them off him, put him in new clothes, probably bathe him, put him in new clothes. There was something he had to do to participate in that resurrection process. He was resurrected, but he had to stand up and come forth. Does that make sense? And so sometimes we need to remember that God can do things instantaneously but then we have to partner and do the process. And that's what I like about Celebrate Recovery. Because day after day after day, a little bit more of the grave clothes become unwrapped and come off. And that's a fantastic thing. The second thing we need to do is set the Lord before us always. Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Right hand in the Bible means valued, honored in an intimate position that's why whenever you hear jesus is at the right hand of god the father that's a place of authority and intimacy and value and priority and that's what we have to do with the lord is keep our eyes on the lord and say he is at my right hand he's a priority in my life i'm going to focus on him and him alone the third thing we have to do is we have to name what is keeping us up at night you and i know that sometimes we need to name our fears so that we can have power over them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Knowing the name of something is powerful. So instead of just saying, man, I've got, I'm a little bit anxious today, we need to be like, you know what? I'm anxious today because I'm afraid of the lack of money in my bank account. I'm fearful today because X, Y, or Z. Once you name your fear, you have power over it. And then you lay it at the foot of the cross and you give it to the Lord, and you walk away. 
but we need to name our fears. We need to bring a name to them. The fourth thing is we fill our mouths with praise. Worship and worry cannot occupy the same space. We, and this is actually scientific. We have to create new neural pathways for our brain. I used to say this to myself a lot, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and that Lori, that's Lori's life verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. There's a scientific reality that the more you think the same thing about one thing, the more you create a neural pathway in your brain so that when you think on it, you go back to that pathway immediately. That's why you see sometimes addicts, they have that little rubber band around their wrist. Whenever they think of something they don't want to do, they snap that rubber band. It's supposed to break that neural pathway in their head. You've heard of that before, right? It's the same thing that's going to happen with praise. If we begin to praise instead of worry, it's like a rubber band. We're, we're breaking that neural pathway in our mind that always sends us to worry and fear and anxiety. Does that, does that follow? Does that make sense to you guys? That's why praise is so important. The second giant I want to talk about tonight is rejection. And of course, that's the second biggest one I have, is rejection. Rejection has a lot of different um, names. Low self-esteem, inferiority, even self-hate. Other side of the family is perfectionism, winning at all costs, and being an overachiever. And the reality is all people struggle with some form of rejection. Just look at social media. You'll see some of our young people are posting their Instagram selfies or whatever they're posting, on, and they're competing with how many likes they get. Do I have 200? Do I have 250? Do I have 300? Whatever. Am I right, girls back there? Yeah, yeah. Do you not measure yourselves sometimes by how many likes you get? That's real though scary. Look back at the story of David and Goliath. David wasn't the oldest, he wasn't the strongest, and he was not the most popular. In fact, his brothers almost hated him. He was definitely not popular. It is not by the strength of men that battles are won. It is the work of God in our lives. No amount of money or looks or success can insulate you from the possibility of rejection. And rejection comes at us in different ways. For some, it's the outwardly beautiful people who are afraid of losing their looks or their appeal. Athletes who are afraid they aren't as gifted as others or they might be one injury away from, from losing their position. Or smart people, intelligent people, struggle to keep that image up and afraid that people don't recognize their value in their brain and their intelligence. And here's the reality, you guys. This is huge. Anything we are gifted at can also become our greatest giant when we define ourselves by our gifts. That can become our greatest giant. Psychologists tell us that the most powerful force in humanity is acceptance. We all want to be accepted. That's why some people stay with their friends that are not good for them or that might lead them down bad paths because for them, acceptance is more important than the consequences of those bad friendships. They would rather be accepted at all than not accepted and have no friends. Let that sink in for a second, you guys. That's why some of the people you know don't make good decisions with their friends or with their relationships because they have such a desperate need to be accepted. 
The antidote to rejection is to cloak ourselves in the true acceptance that Christ offers. Last page. Last page. Oh, don't have it done, sorry. You are worth Jesus to God. To do this, we have to embrace four principles. We must understand the miracle of our creation. We were uniquely, beautifully, intentionally, purposefully, and wonderfully made. Psalms 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in the book before one of them came to be. Number two, we revel in the mystery that Jesus chose us. This is kind of a, a weird one because we kind of want, always want to think that we have free will and we choose God, right? I, wanna, I, I really believe in free will. I believe in the free will of God. However, there's a reality that God chose us, that God chooses us. And I don't know how to put those two things together, but they go together. They go together. Ephesians 1, 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. 1 Peter 1, 2 through 9, you, This is one of my favorite. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And 1 Thessalonians 1 through 4, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The reality is we've been chosen. Every single one of us has been chosen since the foundation of the earth to be loved by God. He loves us. He's for us. And we're worth it to him. That's why he sent Jesus. There is not one single thing that we can do that erases our worth to God. I posted a um, Facebook um, video, I don't know if any of you saw it, of a severely autistic son. Did any of you see that video? so good yeah it's a it's a video about um a father he does an interview with his i mean severely autistic the son tries to bite him while he's on the video and he's like no son we're not going to do that and he puts him to the side and he talks about how the doctors wanted him the son to be institutionalized but the but his mom and dad said we're not going to do that and they 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 made a school in their home and they brought in all these resources and they taught him and they educated him and now he goes to high school but in this video, here's this father saying, this boy changed my life. And he's, this boy is hitting him and trying to bite him <laughs> and all kinds of things. And he's on and off. And he comes back. At the very end, you see that he kisses him on the lips. And the, but the father is like, I feel completely blessed to be with this boy. I love my son. And I just want you to know that boy was beautifully and wonderfully made. He's unique and he has a purpose. And Jesus died for that severely autistic son and for that that picture is a fantastic picture of how much God loves us. It does not matter if we try to bite God or if we can't speak or we can't do the right thing. We are worth it to God. And that was a fantastic picture for me. I loved it. Thirdly, we need to grasp how costly it was for Jesus to rescue us. You know, in America, it always seems like our worth is determined by how much money we have. You know, we have lists in America, the top 100 richest people in the country or 
the top billionaires or who's on the Forbes list or all these kinds of things. In America, it feels like we're defined by what we do, how well we perform, and how much money we have. And then, and then how good, really how pretty we are. Are we thin? Are we beautiful? Are we young looking? We're, we're defined by the externals. Doesn't that seem that way? What we have to be defined by is the fact that Jesus rescued us, that God himself died to rescue us, not by what we have or what we do, but by who rescued us. We're defined by our Savior. We're defined by the fact that Jesus rescued us, not by any of those things. And fourthly, then this is the last thing, I'll wrap it up with this. We need to understand that we have to live from acceptance, not for it. And to do that, we have to recognize that we need acceptance. We were built to be accepted. We were, we were created to be accept, accepted. We were created for family, and we were created for community. Real, authentic community. And we need to embrace that. That's a real need in our lives. But we're created, we need to, we need to understand that it's the acceptance of God that slays that giant of rejection, not the acceptance of all these external things. Does that make sense? And, and this, is, this is kind of the example from the Bible. You know, Jesus was 33 years old when he was crucified and died. And for 30 years, he did not have a public ministry. In fact, in fact scholars mostly agree, correct me, he did not um, perform his first miracle to after, until he started ministry. Some scholars debate that, but that's mostly accepted. Correct, David? Okay. So when he was 30 years old, right before he started his public ministry, he went to his cousin, John the Baptist, to be baptized in the Jordan River. And he goes in and he's baptized. He's not yet walking in the fullness of his ministry. He's baptized. He comes up. And the heavens part, and down comes a dove. And, he, and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus had not performed one miracle. He had not, he had not saved one person. He had not called the disciples. He had done nothing. And Jesus said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's what Jesus says to each one of us. You're my children in whom I'm well pleased. It's not about what you look like. It's not about what you do. And it's not about your bank account. It's because I love you and I'm well pleased with you. There's nothing we can do to earn his acceptance. We already have it. And that's what will slay our giant when we partner with that truth and we live from that truth. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to close and pray for us. And then next week, we'll explore the other three giants. Does that sound good? So bow your heads with me, please. And I'll have better notes. <laughs> More notes. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are David. You are our champion. It's an all or nothing battle. And you've already won. You've already defeated our giants, Lord. I ask that you help us to partner with you, that we would live out of the reality that our giants are dead. And we get to carry their head around and show them to people. That they're dead and they have no power over us. Lord, I pray that you would free people from the giant of fear and rejection. It would no longer have any authority in their lives. That they would begin to live the abundant life that you have ordained and destined for us. God, we bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.